right, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn over to Revelation chapter 2. Ooh, exactly. Scary revelation. Um, before we jump into that, though, I heard great things about last week. I heard it was an encouraging Sunday. Um, I wasn't there. I was, well, I was there in the shadows, kind of setting some stuff up. But I was recovering from COVID and couldn't be around people, which, in case you're wondering, that's why I'm wearing a jersey today. So I missed the tailgate service last week. So this is my tailgate service. And so I'm wearing the Steelers jersey with pride. Go Steelers. Um, anyway. <laughs> So uh, I knew I couldn't do this with a, a, a Cowboys jersey. You know, it wouldn't have been allowed. So anyway, this is uh, welcome to my personal tailgate service, but uh, also our regular service. want to give a couple thank yous. Uh, thank you uh, to the Hogans for all their work in organizing all the food and stuff like that. They did a great job with that and all the prep work. And thank you to Danielle and her crew in setting everything up with the food day of, working hard. There was plenty of food, lots of chili, lots of baked beans, lots of stuff on the grill. Thank you to the grilling team. I think the grilling team is also the counting team, so they're, they're doing multiple things. But uh, Alan was out there grilling. And uh, thank you to all of you for bringing food and, and, and staying and, and enjoying. Even though the Steelers were losing, the, the joy up until about halftime was, was there. It was great, you know. And there was a lot of great uh, fellowship going on as well. And then lastly, thank you to so many others, but Josiah, Josh, and Darnell for cleaning up at the end and being that cleanup crew. That goes a long way and is often overlooked. So thank you to the cleanup crew there. On top of that, last week was the kickoff for our 40 days of prayer. Elena's already talked about that and the encouragement. We are selling the book for just a couple more Sundays, so get the book. If you haven't gotten it, join us for midweeks. It's been an awesome series, and it has been great if you ever wonder and, and want deeper relationships, talking about your prayer life together or praying together is a great way to deepen your relationships. Uh, even just saying, hey, what have been some of your impossible prayers that you've been praying about? And then you also grow in faith because someone might share something that's their impossible prayer and what they've seen God already do. And you're like, wow, God's done that. That's cool. I'm gonna, that inspires me to want to pray more about the things on my list and my impossible prayers. And so I encourage you, don't just read and kind of sit in the corner, but let's engage together as a community, amen, in this 40 days of prayer. Um, we are, on top of that, on Sundays, we are focusing on the book of Revelation for the rest of the year. And we talked about this two weeks ago. We don't have to be afraid of revelation. I think I said revelations, right? But we don't have to be afraid of revelation. We don't have to be afraid of that book. It can kind of be interesting. We're going to get into the dragons and the beasts and the thing with all the eyes and all that. But the whole point of revelation, if you will remember, is that it is apocalyptic. And again, apocalyptic sounds like end of the world, hunger games kind of thing. But apocalyptic simply means to unveil. And so to, to pull back the curtain. That God's desire with the book of Revelation is to pull back the curtain on the realities of this world and show the worldliness and the ways of the world for what it is, which is unsatisfying, and to show that the way of God is always best and always perseveres and is always the winning side of the battle. And so for us, we look at Revelation because we want greater hope and greater encouragement. And so today we're going to hopefully receive greater hope and greater encouragement as we unpack uh, this book a little bit more. The whole point is that you can believe, you can have hope, you can endure. It is worth it. Don't bend. Stay unflappable. Unflappable is a vocab word for the day, but it means unyielding, to not, to not be deterred by the stuff going around you, 
right? I'm unflappable. We want to be unflappable in our Christianity, amen? All right, you can jot that down, SAT word. Yeah, don't, don't start flapping. <laughs> um, but we're going to kick things off with uh, chapters 2 through 3 here, which is within Revelation, we have a mini-series, because uh, chapters 2 through 3 in Revelation are all about these letters to the churches. So these seven different churches in basically Asia Minor, um, John, while he's on the island of Patmos exiled, he is writing these letters under uh, this vision that he has from Jesus. So Jesus says, hey, I have these letters for you. Take them to these seven churches. And so John has these seven churches that he is, is passing on the message of Jesus. And we're going to call this mini-series as we look at these seven different churches and what Jesus had to say to them. And this is our mini-series right here. It's called uh, The Jesus-Approved Church. So if Jesus were to look at our church or look at our lives and were to write a letter, what is it that he would say to us? Because that's what happens here in the, in the various churches. We have Ephesus and we have Smyrna and we have Pergamum, all these churches, including Philadelphia. Um, actual Philadelphia, not, not Philly, you know, there in Pennsylvania. But he writes all these letters and the whole point is, hey, I see you. You're not just some church, you know, operating outside of God's interference. He says, no, I see what you're doing. And I see these things that are going well and I see these things that are not. And I'm calling you to repent and to grow and to change and respond to my message. That is how Jesus has always been with his church. We have, you know, our letters of revelation in the whole Bible, continually calling us as a fellowship and as individuals to grow and change and reflect more what the church of Christ is meant to be. Um, with that, with our, our mini-series here, the, the Jesus-approved church, I want to talk about church just a little bit. You know, sometimes in our, in our culture, um, it's easy to separate Jesus from church. Right? Sometimes, maybe, maybe you're like, no, how could you separate those things? But imagine for a second, you know, out there, there's kind of this idea of like, yes, I love Jesus, but that whole church thing, the organized religion thing, not my, not my cup of tea. And that's usually when the image of Jesus is just kind of hippie Jesus, love everybody, it's all good, you know, laid back. And that's kind of the image of Jesus. And we kind of can separate Jesus from church. And as we'll talk about today, we can do the same in the church that Yes, I go to church, I do the church things, but I'm far from Jesus at the same time. And so it's actually, even though Jesus is the church, and he says, I'm the head of the body and the church is my body, we kind of culturally can separate those two things. In fact, you'll hear when you talk to people about faith and different things, you'll hear sometimes people say, I'm not a fan of organized religion. Have you ever heard that before? My response to that has always been, that's awesome, because we are a very disorganized group. You'll love it. <laughs> We're not an organized religion. We're disorganized. And they, they laugh a little bit and then kind of walk away. But the idea um, is organized religion is this negative thing, that the idea of having an organization or having structure or having a game plan as a community, that that seems wrong, that if I'm close to Jesus, I should just flow with, with love and kindness and good Christian vibes all the time. But we have to remember that Jesus set up the church. Jesus had a whole plan for the church. If you look back at Jesus' ministry, he approaches Peter and says, Peter, you're my guy on this rock. He, he named him the rock. Uh, he was the son of John, so he's Peter the Rock Johnson. But he's, his name is the rock. He's, he's Peter. And, and he says, Peter, on this rock, on you, I will build my church. So Jesus is not separate from his church. He established his church. He says, the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church. The gates of hell has nothing 
against my church. So Jesus loves church. Jesus loves the concept of church. He loves the organization that we need to grow, but he also expects it not just to be a building, but to be a group of people that are building relationships with God and building and growing in their faith. He expects it not to remain simply an organization, but it's an organism, that it's growing and it's, it's, it's moving and it's actually living out the purpose of the head, which is the body. So that's a lot to say about the church, but the long story short, Jesus likes church, but he also expects church to reflect Jesus. Follow what I'm saying there? Make sense? And that, I think, is embodied so well in the ordering of what's happening here. So bear with me here. Revelation 1, we get introduced to Jesus. Jesus in all his glory, if you remember looking at that two weeks ago. We're in a few weeks going to jump to Revelation 4 and 5, which is Jesus taking John and taking us, respectively, into the Holy of Holies and seeing uh, God in his glory and seeing God glorified and seeing and, and bowing down and being amazed at the glorification of God and his son. And what happens in between 1 and 4 and 5? Well, if you know math, 2 and 3 are in between there, which is the letters to the churches. And what's cool about this is God is not just like, hey, I'm holy and I'm awesome and you guys better change so you can get on my level. In between this message of God's holiness and righteousness is the messed up churches that we're about to read about, which means God knows that we have issues. God knows that as Christians we struggle and that his church is full of sinners. And so the church is gonna reflect that at times. But he works with us and he has hope for us. He's not just like, you guys better fix it because I'm here and you better get on my level. He goes, no, I'm in it with you. Yes, my holiness is there before and after, but he, he has these letters where the, the letters here are gonna call the churches to change and to repent, but it is a message of hope. He says, I'm not giving up on you. And that's the message that happens sometimes. I love Jesus, but I had a bad experience at church, so I give up on God. And God's like, no, I've had a bad experience sometimes with my church too, but I ain't giving up on them. They're my people, and I, I have chosen to use them. You know, it's, it's crazy to me, this is not in my notes, but it's just crazy to me that God and all his, if I was God, the way I would get his message out there would be I'd buy some billboard space and ad space or do some miracles in the sky, or there's, there's a whole plan, a whole PR plan, if I was God, of how I'd get the message out there. But God has chosen us to be that plan. And that's plan A. <laughs> we are God's plan A. I feel like God's plan like, Z or something at different times, but we're God's plan A to get the message out there. There is no plan B. He's chosen us as, as messed up and as challenges as we have whatever, God chooses us. And uh, even though he knows that we struggle as we read about, he still chooses us and gives us hope and reason for repentance. Amen? All right, that's a little background there for our series, uh, the Jesus Approved Church. Now let's jump into church number one. We're gonna jump into the church in Ephesus. So in chapter two, we'll read this together and then we'll jump into how this applies to our life. All right, Ephesians chapter two, verse one, it says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, there are, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name, and you have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. 
Consider how far you have fallen. Remember and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So this is the letter, this is the message that he has. And there's a whole pattern to all the letters here. It's the positive affirmation. It's the call to repentance and what's not going right. And the, the basically the motivating principle is the third aspect. Why, why should we actually change? So there's three things that are happening here. The first thing is he says, what you have going on great is that you are not succumbing to the false teaching around you. He says, you guys are actually killing it in that category. You're doing a great job. You're resisting. So the, the church in Ephesus, Ephesus was one of the biggest cities in ancient Rome. It was, it was close. Uh, it's like Rome and, and different uh, people argue what was second place, but largely it was, it was Ephesus, was the epicenter of culture. So as a result, people were worshiping and, and practicing all kinds of philosophies and worshiping all kinds of gods all around them. And so for the early Christians, the temptation was to succumb to the world around them and to be like the world around them, and to, to worship the other gods. And even more so, the temptation was, okay, I'll still be a Christian, but I'll go to this temple and worship this god, or I'll engage in this business practice, but I'll kind of just cross my fingers behind my back. I'll kind of just do the stuff, but me and God, we're tight, but I'm going to keep doing and fit in around me, because that's comforting, and I don't, I don't get in trouble for that, right? And that can kind of be what we talked about today. I'm not even going to try. Obedezco, pero no cumplo, right? It's this idea of I obey, but I'm not, I'm not really in it, right? <laughs> no, no bueno, but thank you for the encouragement. Um, but it's that idea that, okay, I'm going to, the temptation is I'll just be like everyone else, but I'll still keep my Christian roots, and I'll just try to blend in. And I can do that, by the way, as a Christian, especially as a minister. Like, okay, I really want to just fit in first, and then I'll kind of sneak the gospel message in. And that, that's not really what we're called to do as Christians. We're not called to be judgmental, of course, but we are called to, to stand firm, to swim upstream, and to live differently than the world around us and be unapologetic about it. And that's what the church here was getting on straight, which is awesome, because there's all these things trying to influence them. It's kind of like this time of year. If you go to CVS or Rite Aid, you're walking through the aisles, and you, at the corner of your eye, you see it. The Christmas decorations are already out. The Christmas sales are going, right? It's Christmas music. It comes and it's too early. Like, what's happening? Christmas is starting too early. And all of a sudden, the influences start happening, right? And, and little do you know, you're thinking, oh, man, do I have to think? It's September, by the way. And I saw Christmas decorations yesterday. Uh, granted, I was at Michael's, right? But you're like, what is happening? It's too early and it starts infiltrating you, right? And you start getting, getting moved and affected by all the Christmas stuff. All of a sudden you're walking along and you're saying, la 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 You're like, what is happening? It's October or September. But it kind of starts to influence. And that's what's happening in Ephesus. It's the outside influences are trying to break in. And the church is standing firm. They're saying, no, we're not going to let it. By the way, I'm a big fan of Christmas music early. The next slide is definitely... More, or no, one more over the other way. One more. 
Oh, maybe it didn't make it, but uh, there's another meme on there somewhere. But I'm a big fan of Christmas music early. I, I listen to Christmas music year-round, so I don't mind the infiltration of Christmas. I know some people feel differently about different things. But it's kind of like that, right? This influence is around them, but the church is saying, no, we are not going to submit to the culture around us. And that's what they have on straight. But then Jesus has something to say, and he prefaces it this way, yet I hold this against you. And imagine sitting in a house church in Ephesus and this letter is being read and they're like, you're doing great. You're not, you know, bowing down to these people. You're like, yeah, we rock. This is awesome. Ephesus, Ephesus. You're like, yeah, we got it going on. And then you hear, yet I hold this against you. And it just gets quiet in that, in that living room. You're like, oh, Jesus is holding something against us. That is a scary place to be. He says, I hold this against you. And Jesus is about to point something out, and he, he brings up a challenge. And the temptation for anyone in that situation, for me, if I was in that situation, it would be this. Yeah, I know I'm not doing that, but look at all the stuff I am doing. Look at, yeah, this isn't too great, but I go to church, I tithe, I do all this stuff. And it's just so easy to rely on that instead of listening to the voice of Jesus or the voice of the Holy Spirit, which is saying, yet I hold this against you. doesn't matter how good your resume is. There's something that needs to be different. We've got to listen to the voice of Jesus. And what does he say to them? You have forsaken the love you had at first. You have forsaken your first love. This word forsaken, we, we know it from Jesus on the cross. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? And it's this idea that, that uh, to forsake your first love is to let go. To release. It's actually the same word for forsake is what, what is used in forgiveness. It's you're supposed to forsake the wrong done against you. You're supposed to let it go. And so what's happening here is instead of letting go of the wrongs, they're letting go of their love for God or their love for one another. They are forsaking the love they had at first. The passion, the devotion, it is beginning to wane. It's kind of like this next picture um, hopefully, I know my slides are a little off. You know that feeling, you kind of feel the tension at that picture, right? A couple sitting next to each other, that just the space gets a little bit wider. Sometimes at, at church you can tell, oh, they had a fight on their way to church, you know, just by the body language or something's going on, that the love begins to wane. Or maybe like the next picture, right? That over time, the waters just kind of take away some of the feeling, little by little. Doesn't happen overnight. They're not giving up on God, but they're letting their love for God start to drift little by little, start to fade little by little. And scholars have two different thoughts, and it's not surprising to think about the two, but the two are probably that this is either talking about love of God or love of God's people. And we, as, as we read this today, can apply it to both, that their love for other people is starting to fade probably because their love for God is starting to fade, that those things we know from our study of First John, that those things go hand in hand, right? That if we love God, we have to love people, and by loving people, we understand the love of God better. So their love in general of people and of God is starting to fade. And this is so crazy when you think about their track record. Like before and after, they're like, you are, you are doing good resisting the world around you. But that doesn't matter if you're forsaking your first love. 
And I think for us as Christians, us in our church, we can, we can stamp the flag down on doctrine, and that's so important. Stamp the flag down on righteousness and the call to be different and the call to live sacrificially. But we gotta ask ourselves, have I forsaken my first love? Am I holding on to the doctrine and the principles and all the stuff I need to, but am I letting go of my love and affection and devotion to my God? Doesn't matter how firmly you are resisting the world, if we're lacking love for God, Jesus still has something against us and is calling us to change. Their love had gotten left behind. You know, different uh, commentaries I've read on this passage talk about this being an example of distorted love, or disordered love, excuse me, but love that gets out of order. So it's not so much, because they're doing good things in their practice, it's not so much, I don't love God, it's I love God less than these other things. I love God, but I love myself more. I love people, but I like my Sunday afternoons to myself a little bit better. Yeah, I love God, but I like my privacy a little bit better. I love God, but I love my peace or my routine or how I want things to go better. And so it's not that they're choosing not to love God. They're choosing most likely to love something more than God, and it's affecting how they are devoted to God. Because we know as human beings, but also as Christians, that love gives you that extra push. You know what I'm talking about with the extra push? If you're on, uh, you're on a run or you're trying to work out and the right song comes on or you have a, a, a lifting partner or someone that just gives you that extra push to go a little bit further than you would naturally go. We're going off of our natural feelings or inclinations. We, we tend to, to pull back a little bit, but love is that extra push to go further. You know, love helps us not look at how, we're, how our love is received, right? If we give love to somebody and it's really out of love, we're not, saying, we're not keeping score. Okay, I served them. I gave them a meal when they were sick. Where's my meal when I'm sick? Right, we can get stuck in that mindset. But when it's love, it's that extra push to say, hey, I just want to give. It's better to give than to receive. Love is that extra. Love is delighting in just being in the presence of someone else and getting to know them. Love is that extra push in sharing what you have with somebody, sharing the message that you have. When, when you're fearful of sharing the gospel message or inviting someone to church, it's usually love that pushes you a little bit further. Okay, out of love for this person, out of love for God, I want to share this message. And love makes living for God a joy. Christianity is a chore that is never truly worth it without love. Christianity Christianity is a chore that is never truly worth it without love. When we don't have love, we know this from, from uh, 1 Corinthians 13, right? It's just a resounding gong that without love, it's just kind of miserable. That we're just doing stuff and self-sacrificing, but there's no love there. Who would want that? That's not good. That would be a bad recipe for a marriage or any kind of relationship. And of course, God doesn't want that for us either. He wants us to have love. Now, I was reflecting on this as I was working on the lesson, and I can relate to this idea. I was in tears thinking about this um, yesterday, thinking about my own life and how easy it is to do the Christian stuff and leave the love behind. And how easy it is for me that the, the longer I, obviously being a minister, but I think just being a Christian and checking off the boxes, getting up and and reading the 40 days of prayer, because that's what we're doing right now as a church and doing all this stuff. It's so easy, shamefully easy, to do it without love. Yeah. And it comes, it, it comes into fruition when I get to that line of maybe what I need to do, and I stop versus that little extra push 
to do something, not out of obligation, but out of, I guess, obligation of love. Like, out of my love for God, I want to do this. It's that little extra that I can feel myself continually pulling back from. And by the way, sometimes I use the concept of boundaries to excuse me from greater love. And boundaries are really important. It's important to have boundaries. That is crucial. Know yourself here. If you're somebody who struggles with setting up proper boundaries and saying no when you need to say no, continue to work on that. But sometimes, and myself included, in an effort to sound really spiritual and nice, I say, I just got to have some boundaries here. But I'm actually resisting the opportunity to be like Jesus who crossed boundaries to love. Again, hear what I'm saying. If you need to work on boundaries, work on boundaries, right? But I'm saying for myself, there are times where I use that as a crutch to not actually love the way I'm being called to love. And then I can also become very calculating. Well, this person drove me to the airport, so I should drive them to the airport. Or this person did this thing, so I need to do that. Or this per- and I get very calculated, and I keep score, and that's not love at all. And then that adds to resentment and bitterness and weird feelings and all this stuff, and I can lose the love I had at first and the love for God because I'm focused on obligation or doing the Christian stuff. This is why I need Jesus in this passage, why we all need Jesus in this passage. Because Jesus comes in with the solution. Imagine if he's just like, I have this against you. You've forsaken your first love. Y'all better fix that or I'm coming. He doesn't say that. He, he gives instruction, which I love all throughout these churches as we'll read about. He says, do this instead. And what does he say here? Do the things you did at first. Which, which makes absolutely logical sense. You've forsaken your first love, so do the things you did at first. The title of today, by the way, is First Things First. I'm the realist. Uh, first things first. So it's this idea that we need to put first things first and to seek God and to love God first. And uh, that's what he says here. Do the things you did at first. Repent and do those things. It's, it feels so simple, but I, I got I to gotta point out one thing. It doesn't say feel the things you felt at first. It says do the things you did at first. What happens when we're off with God is we're waiting to feel the things we felt at first so that we'll do the things we did at first. And he says, no, that's not the instruction. You're not supposed to sit around there and wait till you feel something. Or, God forbid, we wait for someone else to provide that feeling for us. And we expect the church's responsibility or my disciple's responsibility or my mentor. No, do the things you did at first. That's Jesus' instruction to the church, to us, to do the things you did at first. And again, this makes sense. When, when Elena and I are off a little bit in our marriage, what do we go back to? One of the things we did at first, which is write cards for each other. If, I, if I'm upset with Elena, I sit down and write a card, that, those bad feelings just kind of start to melt away, right? Or we play some of our, our first dance songs, you know, or things that we, some songs that were special, and it kind of, it, it, it takes away the, the, the crustiness that can get in there, right? And it helps us to, to love one another. We do the things we did at first, and it helps. Or sometimes we just hold hands. Just, hey, baby. <laughs> but we, we need that, right? And it's with God, it's the same way. That if we do the things we did at first and we choose to do those things, our heart will catch up. The love and the feelings will follow, but it takes a decision to do those things. It's kind of like uh, an al- algorithm on your social media feed. Or if, you have, uh, if you're on TikTok or watch YouTube shorts or whatever. 
But you know, if you, if you mess up your algorithm and go down a rabbit hole looking at a certain type of a video and you're like, oh, this comedian's funny, let me watch a bunch. And all of a sudden that comedian pops up all over your feed. Or you're like, wow, this, for me, there was a time I was really into pressure washing videos. And I went down the rabbit hole, which was really cool, but all of a sudden it was like every other video was pressure washing videos. And I was like, this is, uh, and so sometimes that happens in our life where we're, we kind of go down these rabbit holes and we're off in our relationship with God and we need to reset the spiritual algorithm in our life and do the things we did at first and get back into our Bibles, get back into meeting together, get back into sharing our faith. When we do those simple things, our love for God starts to get restored. Do the things you did at first. Reset the algorithm. You know, what are some of the things you did at first that helped you in your relationship with God? Was it reading the word and, and searching and, and wanting to understand the Bible better? Excitement to study the Bible with someone else. Being committed to prayer, serving the poor, working on the unloving things in your heart. All those things are things I did at first that if I get back into those things, the love does get refreshed. This is not meant to be the fourth plug in today's service, but the 40 days of prayer is really helpful for this. It can just be helpful just simply to get, get up in the morning, get on your knees and start praying and to turn to God and just do, get back into the rhythm, the nine minute a day rhythm, right, of just reading and praying. You know, we wanna be a Jesus approved church. Here in Pittsburgh, we don't own a church building because we are a building church. We're a church that strives to build and to grow. That is who we are. We're trying to build this kind of church, and we are building this, by the way, but I just want to remind us of some things that we're trying to build, some things we did at first that we want to do again. We want to be a church that's full of people who share about what they're learning in the Bible. That that's, that, that's commonplace. We want to be the kind of church that's full of people who want to help the, the teens and be teen mentors or help with other people and mentor other people. We want to be a church that's full of people who meet up every week with another Christian to talk about their lives and the Bible. We want to be that. Call it discipling, call it encouraging. Call, I don't care what you call it, but let's be in the practice of getting together. And just as a total side note, one of the things we all did at first was listen to someone else teach us how to be better Christians. That's how we became Christians, right? And so are you in the habit of listening to someone help you be a better Christian? That's it, really easy, do the things you did at first. And it's really easy to resist that and think, I've, I've uh, evolved past that where I don't need that anymore. But Jesus says right here, do the things you did at first. And last thing is, I am responsible for getting someone to help me be a better Christian. And so if, if, I'm, if I have someone and I've asked them to help me be a better Christian, but they're not initiating with me, I don't just sit there and say, well, I tried. No, I am the one responsible for my spiritual growth, and therefore I must go and pursue it. Can we get together? No one should be knocking down the door trying to get time with you if they're the one positioned to help you. We should say, bring it on. I want it in my life. Amen. That's a side note from the Holy Spirit, I believe. But we want to be a church that's full of people who are actively trying to bring other people to church. I do want to lift us up as a fellowship here real quick. I'm going over time. I'll try to wrap it up soon. But our goal for the year was to have 52 new people come out to church. And that we've been praying for that. Last Sunday, we hit 55. We, we surpassed our goal, the 52 chair challenge. So encouraged by the church. That is, that is growing in the right direction because we're not just sitting here saying, wow, we, we like church, it's just for us. Say, no, I have something special and I wanna share it. And that's, that's the kind of culture we wanna build. By the way, for a lot of us, that's the things we did at first. 
that by sitting down and studying the Bible with somebody, we grow in our faith by sharing the gospel. That helps us grow, and we see God moving in those ways. So let's keep going. We'll, we'll expand that goal uh, soon, but the 52-chair challenge, amen, Pittsburgh Church. So encouraging. Amen. So Jesus says, do the things you did at first. You guys know what that is in your own life. So do it, amen. Let's repent and do that. But then the motivating part here at the end, and this will be real brief, but it says, whoever is victorious, if you change this, I will give you the right to eat at the tree of life in the, the garden of paradise. What's so cool about this is that this is a callback to the garden of Eden. If you've ever been in a Sunday school class, that's all the way back in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And so what Jesus is saying is if you do the things you did at first, if you recapture your first love, it'll look like things looked at first. In the very beginning, all the way at the very beginning, when I walked among you in the garden and we were close and we had an intimate relationship, me and mankind, when you were able to, to not be burdened by sin and burdened by shame and all this stuff, that you can have that restored. Again, sometimes in our Christian walk, we think the whole point is just, Suffer now and make it to heaven. But as Christians, we are meant to usher heaven into today. And that's what happens when we love like we did at first. When we remember our first love that we are actively practicing and bringing Eden into everyday life. That we're ushering in a greater sense of justice, a greater sense of purpose, uh, and a, a greater sense of, of love and connection with God. And so I just think it's cool that Jesus could have picked anything to motivate them. He's like, hey, do what you did at first, and I'm going to do what I did at first. And we're going to come together, and it'll look like it did in the garden. When we choose to love again, you experience greater closeness to God and fulfillment of your purpose. Jesus believes in the church in Ephesus. He believes in us as his followers today. Enough to send a message of correction, but that message of correction doesn't simply stop with correcting us. But prayerfully, if we respond, if we are victorious, that message gives us greater hope, which is what Revelation is all about. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing one final song.